nobody has all of the time in the world. Nobody is perfect. We might strive and want to be perfect, but nobody actually is. And we can't spend all of that time trying to perfect something because we need some downtime. We need some headspace. We need some sleep time for our own mental and physical well-being. And continuing to think, oh, I should have done that better and replaying it isn't actually helpful for any of us. Hello, and welcome to the VN Times podcast. Join us every month as we take a closer look at the issues impacting on the profession and discover more about the people who make up this wonderful workforce. In this episode, guest host Tom Jackson talks to this year's BVNA Congress keynote speaker, Kate Atkin, whose presentation will focus on a relatively new phenomenon known commonly as imposter syndrome, which, astonishingly, is experienced by around 70% of people at some point in their lives. Kate kindly joined Tom ahead of her lecture to discuss the issue and offer some practical tips to help banish those fraudulent feelings. Kate, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Tom. You're welcome. First things first, I think it might be helpful to give a very brief synopsis as to how you got involved in this, how you discovered this and how you've come about talking about it and helping people because it's quite an interesting journey. I came across the research based on the imposter phenomenon back in 2013. And the reason I came across that was I was doing something I never dreamt I would do. I was doing a master's in applied positive psychology. And having failed the 11 plus many moons ago, I've decided I wasn't academic and wasn't clever and would never be able to to do that sort of stuff. So long story short, husband's encouragement started the master's, was researching into self-confidence and came across what seemed to really be a missing piece of my own jigsaw. Having worked on my own confidence for many years, being a shy person and not speaking out, but wanting to, and wondering when someone was going to find out that I actually was a bit of a fraud. So discovered that there was a name to this and some research behind it called the imposter phenomenon really helped fit things into place for me. And I found it such a fascinating subject. I've researched it in more detail. Thank you for that. And it's it's something that's taken you across well, most of Europe, isn't it? In terms of talking about this to various people and lots of different companies. NHS, I think, was a client. Cancer Research UK as well. It's obviously something a lot of companies have picked up about over time, isn't it? It's definitely becoming a phenomenon people are aware of. And I'm using the word phenomenon, and I know we introduced it as imposter syndrome. So I guess that's probably one of the first things we should clarify, is that the term imposter syndrome is something that's been picked up by the press, by people who have written about it. Sheryl Sandberg used it in her book, Lean In. And technically, it's not a syndrome. A syndrome denotes a a set of symptoms. Now, I guess I'm talking to people that are involved in veterinary. You'll know as well as the GPs and other doctors that actually a syndrome is a set of symptoms. tends to denote some sort of medical condition. It isn't a medical condition. It isn't a mental health condition. It is something that occurs at certain points in time that we experience. And we have this, I find it as an internal, uh-oh, when are they going to realize that right now I don't fit here? I'm faking this. And it's an internal experience at certain points in time, which is why a phenomenon is really the correct term, except it's so hard to say, unless you can remember to think of the Muppet song. Phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then we're getting to syndrome being the more common term that's being used, albeit that incorrect. I'll be honest, I have experiences of this phenomenon as well. It happens around the office frequently, even at home. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I think so. 
and there it is straight away almost as if I'm waiting for someone to kind of find out actually he's not okay he's he's telling a porky and there's no reason why he'd be telling a porky but he might be and it almost kind of starts that trigger for me so I suffer from it all the time and there's other other situations that you always come across you think oh have I done this correct have I done that correct it's surprisingly common I find for myself so I can imagine that it's a phenomenon that a lot of people will will be able to relate to yes absolutely so I pick up on a couple of things there as well that the suffer from we actually experience it I think if we engage too heavily with the thinking that's when we can create the mental health conditions the high levels of anxiety potentially even depression certainly from research it also shows it's linked to burnout but we experience the thoughts, we can choose whether or not we engage with those thoughts. So to suffer from versus experience, I think it's just, again, a, a bit of semantics, but it's also a bit about how we then view ourselves as, are we able to do something about it or not? And the research shows that very much we can do something about it. And I, I know I'm referring to research, but I also referring to personal experience, because there is something that I too have experienced. And when you said, oh, she's she's spoken around Europe. Well, it's interesting. I have spoken across Europe, not on this topic. And yet recently I was speaking to a client where it was streamed into Europe. So I was speaking at a conference at an event in Colchester and the client live streamed it around the country to their offices and into their European countries. So in some ways, well, yes, maybe I have spoken across Europe. And we tend to forget some of the successes we have and tend to play it down a little bit. Like, oh, well, that bit's not true. That bit's not quite right. And sometimes we're dismissing our successes and not letting them come into ourselves and actually be felt as if that's true inside because we tend to go, oh, yes, but that wasn't quite right. That was on a different subject. And that was in this particular environment, not that particular environment. Rather than just accepting and saying, yes, I have done that. It is okay. And those are the words in which the difference between the imposter phenomenon kicking in and, oh, that's not really quite true, I've got to correct it, and that's not really, really quite me, versus us saying, yes, I did do that. It's funny you say that because it's achievements I always seem to downplay in myself as well. It's quite strange. I don't understand where it comes from, but it's almost like, for some reason, when I achieve something that's quite good or something I should be proud of, it's almost like I'm nitpicking and trying to find something that will be wrong with it and something that will then cause it all to fall apart and something to go wrong. I imagine that's a classic experience you come across. Both for myself and other people mentioning it, absolutely. And I think we always, on the inside, we know and can spot the that bit's not quite right. Or if I'd have said that word in this particular way, that would have been either a better pronunciation or a better phrasing of the way in which we're putting something across. So it's not so much the downplaying of the achievements, it's understanding that we know all of the backstory inside of us. We know all of the hard work that we've had to put in to make whatever it is successful happen. So when somebody says that's a really good piece of work, we go, ah, yes, but... And we can always find ways in which it could be improved. One of the things, though, is was it good enough for the job? Was it good enough for that person, for that client? So that aspect of being good enough and somebody saying, that was a great job, and you're going, oh, I don't know, I could have done it better, isn't helpful for you accepting it was a great job, but also it's not helpful for you understanding where the parameters are of what is 
good enough because nobody has all of the time in the world. Nobody is perfect. We might strive and want to be perfect, but nobody actually is. And we can't spend all of that time trying to perfect something because we need some downtime. We need some headspace. We need some sleep time for our own mental and physical well-being. And continuing to think, oh, I should have done that better and replaying it isn't actually helpful for any of us. I couldn't agree more. And I know from my own experience when this has cropped up with me, the easiest way I find to actually eradicate the phenomenon is to actually change task, switch subject, or even go into sleep or something at the end of the day is the perfect tonic for me. So how do you manage the phenomenon today? Is it still something you experience often? Is it something that can be overcome permanently or is it something that you have tools to to help manage? I like the fact of is it something you can overcome permanently as a question. And I would say and the answer to that one is still I don't know because there are still times when it sort of feels like it comes up and bites me on the bum. Every so often it takes me by surprise and it's like, oh, where did that come from? Ah, that's my imposter chatter. And I can decide to know what it is, label it for what it is and not Again, coming back to what I said earlier, it's not engaging in the chatter. How easy is that to do? I can be quite challenging, to be perfectly honest. And sometimes it's difficult for me to disengage and it might take me 24 hours to, to overcome an experience that kicks my imposter into being quite loud and, and vocal and right in front of me. But do I experience it as much or as intensely as I used to? Absolutely not. And I think that's definitely in the last five years of my understanding more about the phenomenon, but also looking at and practicing what the research says works and what works for me anecdotally as well. And what I'm sharing with people and will be sharing at the Congress is tips on how you can overcome it. And when I use that term overcome it, It might not be a permanent overcome, but it certainly lessens the impact and lessens some of the debilitating, for me personally, the debilitating emotional experiences that I used to have and physical experiences. So the anxiety used to transfer itself into crippling stomach aches, which I very rarely get now. And how do I do that? One of the things I think, one of the key things we need to do is coming back to this point about what's success, what's good enough, and actually collecting that good feedback is recognizing what people say about you is their objective experience of what you have done for them. And not going into the internal subjective thing, going, oh, yes, I could have done it better, but actually saying, they've seen that, they've seen it as good enough. Thank you very much. And start to, and I learned this or and I used this skill rather than our but. And we tend to our but the good feedback, but start to collect the good feedback and start to and it would be one of the key things. Focus on the positives. Focus on the positives. But not without the learning. Sorry, on that aspect. No, it's fine. You know, from the field of positive psychology is saying, oh, everything's hunky-dory. You know, it's not going looking at your garden with your eyes open going, there are no weeds when you know full well there are weeds there and we need to pull them out. But we do need to actually look at the balance. And we get many positives that we don't see or hear in as much color as we do the negatives. And I was reading Nick's blog earlier that you've referred to and probably put a link on as well when we're talking about this that actually that technicolor part of, you know, the negatives get played out in such a bright surround sound. We do that, but that's us and our making of it. So we could focus and play 
the positives in that surround sound and Technicolor as well. So earlier this year, our vet blogger, Nick Marsh, he shared his experience of this phenomenon in one of his posts. I think it was in January, but it's been one of the most popular posts that we have shared across our social media in terms of engagement. In it, he described his first day as a veterinary surgeon. And the words that stick in my mind from it is his quote, what am I doing here? I imagine this is a phenomenon that many people experience in all walks of life, not just the veterinary setting. Yes, people do experience it in all walks of life. And the what am I doing here, absolutely not just a veterinary setting. From the research that's been done so far and from the conversations I've had with people, it can be from parenting, it can be from friendships, it can be job applications, it can be in not just a clinical veterinary setting, but all sorts of other of the job roles. So inside and outside of work, it was though, first of all, identified as an academic experience. So an experience of internal intellectual phoniness. But actually, it's gone way beyond that now. And lots of people will experience it. But one of the things I really also want to say is if people are listening to this and going, well, I don't get that, that is also perfectly okay. You know, some it's not everybody that experiences it, but the chances are high. If you are one of the lucky folks that don't get it, you will be working with someone who does. It's worth pointing out that Nick actually ends his blog by telling people that they do know what they're doing and they are not an imposter to try to boost their morale. And the final line, it's the feeling that's the imposter, not you. And I suppose it's getting that message across, isn't it? Absolutely. So the imposter phenomenon is totally not about being an imposter. There's also this aspect of people saying, well, you're going to fake it till you make it. And that's a way of growing confidence. But then at some point, you need to recognise you've made it. And going through veterinary school, you know, you've got years of learning that's brought you to the qualification. It's different for veterinary nurses, I know. And that aspect of there's still amounts of training that you've gone through that you then say, I've got this job for a reason. And the knowledge that I've got, yes, I might not have all of the years as a, a qualified veterinary nurse or veterinary surgeon, but you've still got years of training that's brought you to that aspect of saying, I've got your first job. So some of it, normal self-doubt, is perfectly okay. So it's the first day. You know, ease up on yourself. It's, you know, the first day at work, doing doing this as Nick writes about his, what am I doing here? In some ways, that's probably really common, really common experience and really normal. It's when you've been there for three years and you're going, what am I doing here? When are they going to find me out? But that's much that's still actually quite a common experience, but it's it that's the imposter chatter rather than what I would turn normal self-doubt. It's almost like it manifests itself, doesn't it? I suppose that's probably a word to describe it. Do you think that from a veterinary perspective, it's an environment that is set up to allow it to manifest with situations they encounter? And if so, how do people go about tackling it? That's a really good question. And I think there is something about an environment where people are seen as the experts. We go to you for the advice. I bring my dog to you to say, she's doing this, what's wrong with her? Um, and we're expecting someone else to be in the know. And I think when anybody comes to anyone else for that level of advice, knowledge, experience, 
that is one of the ways in which we're going, oh, who am I to on the inside? Is It might be, have I got enough knowledge, skills or experience? So that environment can be one of the things that trigger it. The aspect of being in the creative industry, for instance, putting your work out there, whether it's in the terms of doing podcasts, for instance, or in the terms of creating a website, design, graphic design. We're probably a good example of that here, creating journals. We obviously want them to be a quality product for, for, for the readership. Yeah. And your work's going out there and being judged by others. You know, that piece about being evaluated, is somebody going to tell me that actually that's not good enough this month? You know, so any of those situations, actually, when you really think about it, there are so few jobs that have zero judgment in them. If you're sitting at the supermarket checkout, somebody will still be judging how you scan something. You know, it it doesn't matter really what role you're doing. Human beings by nature are judgmental, but actually what we tend to be is most judgmental of ourselves and we're most critical of ourselves. And that's the bit that we need to let up on. We need to be kinder to ourselves on the inside rather than judging ourselves as harshly. Because most of the time, other people aren't actually doing that major amount of judgment of us. One particular situation we suspect this may actually come up in veterinary practice is dealing with clients. It may be a situation that may be provoked by a client questioning a diagnosis or wondering why a certain treatment course has been prescribed. Do you suspect that might be the case? And if so, how does the vet, the veterinary nurse, the veterinary receptionist, how do they pull themselves away from the situation, take stock and process that and say, no, I know what I've decided is correct and true and this will help the dog? We imagine it's a situation where the vet, the veterinary nurse is most exposed to it. Yes, and and the... The fact of in any any environment being questioned on something is challenging. Having your whether it's your decisions made or your proposals put forward, your course of treatment in this instance, you know the recommendations that you're making, questioned and challenged, it's always difficult to then go, oh, I'm right. But I think there's something about understanding why the questioner is doing the questioning. Yeah. And recognizing and listening to that and acknowledging their concerns. So tell me what else, you know, and maybe it's asking more questions of the person who's doing the questioning that would help you then understand where they're coming at it from rather than insisting, no, I'm right, or flipping and completely changing your mind and doubting yourself and going to get a second opinion. And sometimes second opinions are really valid. There is no harm in asking for somebody else's opinion on this saying, this is what I think, what do you think? Or these are the presenting symptoms, what do you think it is? I've got my own suspicions, but I want a second opinion before I muddle your mind with what I think it is. Can you just take a look at it for me? There's no harm and no shame in that, but I think we tend to think that we shouldn't ask for help. There's another aspect in not just veterinary practice, but all sorts of walks of life in work. We're going, we shouldn't ask for help. And yet, if somebody asks us for help, we're more than happy to give it. We're more than happy to help out a, a colleague. So that's one of the things. I think the the client might be the trigger, but I also think there's something potentially about the working practice, the environment that you're in that could be a trigger. And I think there's any form of, of manager, whether it's a senior vet, whether it's somebody who's who's doing practice management roles, anybody who's in that position can help create an environment where people look at things where we've maybe got something 
that hasn't worked out and look and share the learnings rather than pick up and failing. I think that's also a big thing. We need to talk about the successes more and we need to talk about more of the learnings that we've had more often. And I think a culture within a practice could be created that would be much more supportive and help people overcome their internal imposter chatter because they're going, oh, actually, it's okay if Mrs. Smith challenges me because I know that they've got my back behind me in the practice. So how do people go about recognising the phenomenon in themselves and in colleagues maybe as well? Again, I come back to my example, I suppose, on this, where I'm okay, I think. I imagine it's signs like that that would probably make people think, ah, it is okay, you are fine, and we're going to help you, help show you that you are fine, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And recognising it in yourself and recognising it in other people are, are different because obviously we know our own insides, and the imposter phenomenon is an internal experience. It's not something we generally wear on our sleeves and tell people about. I'm really encouraging people to talk about it more because that's one of the key ways that can also help lessen the experience is just be open about it and just say it, but in an environment that's going to be supportive. So recognizing it in yourself, I think that sometimes you've got to understand there's a difference between normal self-doubt, uh, which is a lack of confidence perhaps where you haven't done something before. How is imposter phenomenon different from a lack of self-confidence? Confidence, if we take an academic definition of confidence, they term it the perceived ability to succeed at a given task. So confidence is the knowing I can do this specific thing. It's not yeah. an umbrella that we have and wear all of the time and we shall forever forever forth be confident. That's impossible because we're always going to come up to new challenges, new things, new experiences. So the confidence is that perception that you, your own internal perceived ability to succeed at a given task. I know that I've got this and can do this. The imposter chatter is, uh, are you sure? You know, so you can actually have the internal conversation with Almost yourself. Almost like you're talking to yourself. You, exactly. You know that you can do this. And yet another part of you is going, yeah, but what if this time you don't manage it? <laughs> what if this time you manage to flunk that? I can and relate to that. That's the imposter chatter. So we can still be confident and have the imposter phenomenon at the same time. The same as with our emotional experiences, we can be happy and sad at the same time. It's a distinctly different psychological construct, but it's not impossible to experience them both at the same time, which is, also sounds like a bit weird when I'm, I'm saying it out loud now. But that dual aspect that we have, the internal chatter with ourselves, goes on. She's probably going to hate me mentioning this, but my wife... Actually, I see that in her as well. She's brilliant at executing a task, but the amount of self-doubt she puts into her mind while she's doing it, she's been talking about it only this week at home, actually. She's convinced there's a specific task she will not be able to execute because she simply doesn't know how. It's this word can't. Saying that word can't takes me back to primary school. My teacher in year six hated the word can't with a passion. It was banned. And it was simply there was no such thing as can't. And I suppose it's that mentality towards the word can't. I suppose it's acknowledging that that is out there and you can do this. Yes. And there are two, two different things that spring to mind when on can't. There are certain things that we can't do. There are certain things that we can't do yet because we haven't yep. learnt how to do them. And there are certain things that we don't want to do. And I think also understanding those distinctions is really helpful. 
you know, sometimes saying I can't, where actually we mean I really don't want to do that. And it's almost like they're kind of almost intertwining into the word can't, isn't it? Yes. But if we come back to this point about how do you recognize it in others, yeah. there's something about you mentioned this, this I'm okay, I think. And, and there's something about what I guess leaky language is how you could call it. So there's clues that crop up with people's verbal expressions or physical expressions that we might just notice something going on on the inside and be gentle by calling it out. So listen to someone, oh, it was nothing, you know, oh, I just got lucky. Listen out for those sorts of verbal clues, but also listen out for the clues where somebody will roll their eyes when you tell them that they've done a great job, where they shrug their shoulders when you give them some good feedback and gently call out what's happening on the inside to see if you can encourage them to acknowledge and recognize that no you really do mean it they have done a great job and it's not just they've done a great job it's they've done a great job by doing this this and this because the impact it had was this that and that we give poor quality feedback generally to people we tell them they're amazing but we don't tell them why we think they're amazing We tell them they've done a fantastic job, we're so pleased with what they've done, but we don't tell them why they've done that or what skills they've used. And I think we need to give better quality feedback to enable people to overcome these imposter chatter because otherwise we just hear somebody tell us we're amazing. For me, it would be my stomach lurches going, eek, now I've got to live up to your expectations as well. It's such a familiar concept for so many people, but also I would also emphasize the fact that there are absolutely people who go, really? You, You think like that? Oh, I don't know why. And that's because possibly they were brought up to understand that failure is an inevitable part of life. We learn from it, we move on, and we just pick ourselves up, get on with it, and it's all okay. And they are good enough as they are. Whereas others have internalized somewhere along the line, if we fail at something, eek, that means I am not good enough at whatever. And then we interpret it's not just not good enough at something, it's then we then become not good enough in ourselves. And I think that's complete misnomer. Everybody is good enough. You're speaking at BVMA Congress as the keynote lecturer. It's on Friday the 11th of October in the morning at the Congress in Telford. So VNs, if you're going along, obviously this is a chance to learn more about Kate and the message she's giving out. Ahead of the keynote, what do you hope delegates will take away from the lecture? For me, it's the hope that people will recognize their internal selves is good enough, that we are okay. We'll always want to learn more. You know, I think life is that journey where we'll continue to learn until we pop our clogs. But that aspect is where we're at right now is where we're at right now. And that is also okay. And yet tomorrow I'll learn something more and I'll grow. But what we need to do is, I'm using the term growing into myself, we need to recognize that we have already learned an awful lot. And I think some of that recognition is is good. So I hope that's something people will take away from the keynote. And also that it's a common phenomenon that talking about it to others is really helpful and enlightening. So I know you've turned it the keynote lecture. I make sure it's interactive. And I really want to get people during the course of the time that I've got to talk to each other during the session as well i suppose this is an opportunity if people do go along that you know be open talk about it with your peers and potentially with with yourself during the session throw it out in the open yeah ahead of the congress if you could give three tips to delegates and to veterinary professionals in general about overcoming tackling recognizing this phenomenon what would they be 
So the first one would be one of the things that we've mentioned all along right from the beginning of this podcast was to start to collect that positive feedback, to start to keep a record of it somewhere, whether it's photos that you store of of notes or comments that people have sent you or cards that somebody's given you into an, an album or whether it's an email folder that you set up or whether you have an actual physical file of things that you print out and keep and store somewhere. But collect the positive feedbacks because it's so easy to remember the bad ones and lose the good ones. So start to collect the positive feedback. Once you've collected it, the second point would be to notice how you feel or react when you're reviewing that positive feedback. Because I mentioned earlier, the, the yes buts aren't helpful, but the yes ands are. So we're going, oh, yeah, thank you very much, but I didn't do this, this and this. Stop doing that and start to and the feedback. And I learned this by that or and I use this particular skill. So collect the positive feedback. Notice how you react to that positive feedback will be the second point. And then if I was to give one other final tip thinking about the aspect of things is, is understanding something which I will cover on the, at the keynote, but actually understanding also the strengths that you have. Everybody has some strengths. Everybody has some things that they are good at. And it doesn't have to be the world's best, but it's recognizing and understanding that you are good at certain things. And celebrating and it. understanding what that is. You don't have to celebrate in the way of saying, oh, aren't I fantastic? You know, I can do this. Isn't that wonderful? It's somehow there's an internal knowing, an internal sense of self and surety, letting it in on the inside. Because I think sometimes we celebrate but that's a bit of a phony. We're putting it out there. People are telling us we're wonderful and I still haven't let it in. I think we need to really let it in and acknowledge that and start to get some quiet self-assurance going on. Because with the imposter phenomenon, some people will tell me that they want to keep their imposter chatter because it stops them becoming arrogant. If you stop your imposter chatter, can I reassure you that no one, if you've had that level of imposter chatter, no one will become arrogant by just saying, yes, I can do this. Yes, I am good enough. Yes, I have these strengths. That's not arrogant. That's self-assured. Going back to the first of those points, to give everyone an, an example, we here at, at Vet Times on the editorial team, we're journalism trained. And something that is a very common practice, even when going through, through training and, and beyond for some people, is scrapbooks of particular work that we've done that we're happy with and of testimonials. I imagine that kind of thing, building a, a scrapbook, a diary would be a good example of where people can do that themselves. Absolutely. Collecting the scrapbook, but it's not just collecting it. It's not just saying, oh, I'll, I'll hold on to that for my annual performance review or whatever it might have to be. That it's going back and revisiting it, I'll hold it, on I to it for my next... Exactly, Tom. You know, it, it's, uh, it's not sticking into... I'm collecting it and sticking it in a drawer where it's going to collect some dust. It's having the opportunity to review it. And, and give you a chance to celebrate it. I've used the word yeah. celebrate again, but um, it's, the, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's okay. the first word yeah. that instinctively kind of summarizes what you would expect people to do when when they're looking at it almost. But most people don't. Most people go, oh, no, I can't possibly do that. <laughs> can't celebrate it. Oh, no, that wasn't good enough. You but can and you will. And understand. There we go. You yes. can and you will. Kate, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Um I'm sure it'll all go fine at BVNA Congress and it will be a fantastic fine. discussion. I'm not looking for fine. <laughs> it, will be, it will be brilliant. It will be brilliant, I'm sure. 
I hope so. I hope people get something. And the key thing is that they get a takeaway from it. For me, the important part is making a difference for others. And that's the thing. If I can go there and, and make a difference to just one or two people in the room, that would be amazing. On that, actually, I'm sure you're the same. We'd actually love to know how it helps people who go along or who have listened to this podcast. So obviously do please get in touch with us if you took anything on board from what Kate has said and what we've discussed. Or if you go along to the keynote, what you've took away from it and and how it's helped you long term. So, yeah, we'd love to know. Kate, We'd thank love you. to have that good quality feedback, wouldn't we, Tom? Good quality <laughs> feedback. Always wonderful. And as proven by, by what we've just been talking about, it supports us going forward, doesn't it, of course, yeah. as well. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking at the BVNA Congress. And thank you. Thank you very much. It'd be, it'd be great. I'd like to say a big thank you to today's guest and thanks to you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please don't forget to tell your friends about it and also give us a rating on iTunes or leave a review. Until next time from the VN Times podcast team, take care.